So just amen to that. So if it's your first time here, uh, my name is Jonathan Reyes. I serve here as the associate pastor. Uh, we're walking through the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 9, uh, verses 32 to 43, title of the message is Christ's power working through Peter. And it says this, now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and all and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling, all, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Father, in this moment, we come before you um, confessing that in our Western American context, it can be hard for us to believe uh, that you performed these miracles, that you worked through your apostles to uh, restore the, the legs of a paralyzed man, that you uh, resurrected a woman who was dead. Uh, and we wrestle with that. So I pray, Lord, as we engage with your text this morning, that you would give us faith to believe that you are a God who still does these things today, that you are a God who heals and restores the body, that you are a God who can raise the dead. But I pray, Lord, that we would not overlook the fact that uh, the real meaning of this text and how you use these things to point people to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray for those who are here today that you would um, open their eyes and hearts to, to hear from your word. I pray that you would um, just fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit, Lord, so that I may proclaim the truth of your word with power, uh, to proclaim it with boldness, to proclaim it with compassion and conviction, but also with clarity, Lord. I pray that the words would be clear uh, that we would have understanding and that you would give us faith to believe in the reality of who you are. So God, I pray, Lord, that we would not be distracted by what we're having for lunch today or what games are going on today, but that we would be fully engaged and lean into your word this morning. Uh, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been, if it's your first time here, you've been with us for a while, we've been doing a study through the book of Acts for the last couple of months. And uh, the book of Acts is a historical record written by a man named Luke to a man named Theophilus uh, to provide a record of the church, the early days of the church of Jesus Christ. 
and we're picking up where Jesus left off. So after Jesus returned back to the Father, to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to empower his people to be his witnesses, uh, specifically uh, to advance his mission here on earth. And his mission is to empower us to be his hands, his feet, and his voice so that we can make disciples of all nations. In the first chapter, specifically in verse 8, Jesus says to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that verse uniquely kind of breaks down the outline of the trajectory of the book. For the first seven or so chapters, it covers the first two to three years of the early church and how the disciples testified in the power of the Holy Spirit, performing miracles and sharing the gospel in Jerusalem. And then when a severe persecution breaks out due to the stoning of Stephen uh, that was led by a man named Saul, persecution breaks out. And it forces the, the Christians who were in Jerusalem to scatter. And as a result, the gospel is now going out into parts of Judea, which we're going to see in this text today, and into Samaria. And what we're going to see next week is that it's going to begin to break out into the end of the earth. So now Luke again, is now focusing on the ministry of Peter. He took a pause to focus on Philip. Then he told us on the radical conversion of a man named Saul, who was actually a, a chief persecutor of the Christian church, a man who was set out to murder Christians and how Jesus uh, showed up to him as he was on a horse. Jesus kicked him off a boat, uh, off the horse, revealed himself to him. And then now the same Saul who was on a mission to kill Christians is now proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ and making disciples. And now Peter's turning our attention back to Peter. And to give you a timeline of where we are in the history of the church, about, uh, about seven years have now passed by since Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. It's about A.D. 40. And now Luke is writing of how the power of Jesus is working in and through Peter uh, uniquely in the area of miracles. As a medical doctor, that's what Luke was. He was more than just a historian. He was a physician. He knew that, the, the only, that, that it was only a supernatural ability or power that can perform what he is writing about. It, 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 to heal a paralyzed man and to raise someone from the dead is not something that he could have performed as a doctor. That it was a supernatural act. Now, to give you a definition... Miracles in scripture are acts of God that proclaim his sovereign power over creation as well as his commitment to the good of his people. Miracles are often significant because they serve a larger purpose in God's redemptive plan, testifying to the authenticity of God's messengers who bring his revelation to humanity. The reason why we need to understand that is because sometimes we can sensationalize the scriptures and make it seem like miracles are a completely normal thing that happens in the Bible. But if you look at the history of the Bible, the timeline that it covers, miracles are actually things that don't happen very often. We see miracles happen with Moses, and there was a time of silence. And then we have the miracles of the prophet Elijah and Elisha. Then there's another 
time of silence. Then we have Jesus comes on the scene and he performs some miracles. And then the apostles are performing some miracles. And, and these miracles are God's stamp of approval that you should listen to these people, that you should listen to their message. And the main idea that I want us to see from today's passage is that Peter's miracles serve as a sign to point people to Jesus. Peter's miracles serve as a sign to point people to Jesus. And in this passage, we find Jesus working through Peter as he participates in acts of healing, resurrecting, and salvation. So number one, we're going to look at Christ's power over sickness. Look at verses 32 to 35 with me. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now, Luke is turning his attention back to Peter. Peter is the leader of the apostles. All the apostles are equal in their authority, but Peter is the chief, the first among equals. And the last time we hear about Peter was at towards the end of chapter 8, where he and John go down to Samaria because they hear that the Samaritans have responded to the gospel, so they go and pray with them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's the last time we hear of Peter. And now a few years pass by. Persecution has died down temporarily because Saul, the persecutor, has now converted to the way of Jesus. And now Peter has begun to leave Jerusalem with the intention to strengthen and encourage uh, Christians that live at Lydda. We know that he's only going to Christians because the text says that he is going to the saints at Lydda. And saints at this time means that he went specifically to uh, Christians of a Jewish context. Now, there's a, there should be a map behind me. Matt, I'm, Matt, I'm learning from you. There's a map. Uh, and Lydda was a predominantly Gentile community about 25 miles west of Jerusalem. Lydda was a fairly large town. It was a commercial center that was at the intersection of highways that connected Egypt to Syria and Joppa on the Mediterranean coast and also to Jerusalem. In other words, Lydda was a very strategic city where you can reach a ton of people with the gospel. And when Peter gets there, he meets a paralyzed man named Aeneas. We know very little of Aeneas. We don't know his age. We don't know if he was married. We don't know if he was a Christian, if he was a Jew, if he was a Gentile. The only thing we know about Aeneas is that he was paralyzed, that he was paralyzed for eight years, which meant that, which meant was that he was crippled, that he was helpless, that he was a burden, not only to himself, but to other people, and that there was no inclination that he would ever get well. If I can just use my imagination for a moment, I can only imagine the longings of Aeneas' heart. Just imagine that for years you have been able to use your legs to walk to the store, and then one day 
some freak accident happens, and now you are paralyzed from the waist down. And just how much he had to endure suffering and even be humbled because because he couldn't feel himself. Somebody else has to take care of him. Someone else has to give him a bath. Someone else has to clean him up after he has to use the bathroom. Like, just imagine the intense suffering that Aeneas has to go through. You can imagine if he was married, just how much he missed to to, uh, lay with his wife and feel her legs caress upon his legs. Or just even on a warm, sunny day at the beach to feel the, 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 the water from the beach touch his ankles. Or even the fact that he can just go swimming. Just imagine of the suffering that Aeneas has, went, has gone through for eight years. He suffered a long time. I can't even imagine because when I have a migraine, I'm like, I'm out for the count. I don't wish this upon anybody. And my migraine will probably last typically a day. But like for that one day, I'm like, man, to me, that's like the worst suffering. But Aeneas was unable to move for about 3,000 days. Think about that. Day and night, when it's cold, when it's hot, when people are around, whether he's alone, he has to crawl somewhere on his forearms. He can't feel his feet. He's still there on his bed, unable to move. And he has probably had to be fed. He, he, he's literally at a state of total dependency. And all we know from what we can see is that probably is that he was a man acquainted with sorrow, with grief. And when Peter sees Aeneas, he simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, when Peter says, rise and make your bed, it's not the way we would probably understand it in our day to day. When someone, if, you're, if you grew up like me, your mom says, go make your bed, you're thinking that you have to put the sheets on it, make sure it's nice and neat before you go to school. Make your bed in this context meant that now that he can walk, he had to roll it up, and basically he had no use for this anymore. Notice as well is that Peter points to Jesus as the power and source of healing. He doesn't take credit for it. He simply says, I don't heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter knows the source of healing. And Aeneas just got up and walked in response to Peter's words. And everybody's just like, okay, we got, he got our attention. What do you have to say, Peter? But I don't want to overlook just imagining the, the, the joy, the tears that must have fallen through Aeneas's face. He probably leaped for joy and hugged Peter. Just imagine of not being able to use your legs for eight years, and now suddenly you can jump, you can walk, you can run, something you couldn't do for eight years, now you have the ability to do it again. Things we take for granted in the moment that can just be taken away, how God just restores this man's health in front of everyone. And the people watching know that this isn't just a mere act. This is something supernatural that's happening right before them. Some of us in this room are going through a season of suffering. We might not be paralyzed, but nevertheless, some of us are suffering more than others. We, we have a context in our church where there's a, a lot of young families and a lot of babies being born, but I, I don't want to overlook that there are some families who have been trying. 
Like they are going through suffering, trying to start a family and just praying, God, will you make a way? Just wanting to feel that same joy that other families want to experience but haven't been able to. There are Aeneases in this room, and I just want to encourage you to not lose hope. To believe that the same God who restored Aeneas' legs is able to restore your body back to good health. And assuming that the story follows the pattern of Acts 3, where Peter healed another paralyzed man, and that the miracle attracted a crowd, Peter preached the gospel to them. And we see that many people believed the gospel as a result, because the text says that all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and many turned to the Lord. The phrase, all the residents, is not meant to be taken literally that every single person was in attendance. It just said, what Luke is trying to communicate is that a ton of people, a vast number of people, were in attendance and saw this miracle, including that they turned to the Lord and were saved. Peter's miracles serve as a sign to point people to Jesus, and this miracle showed them Christ's power over sickness. So now while Peter is in Lydda, news spread about the power of Jesus working through him that some disciples in Joppa came down to inform Peter of a faithful believer that suddenly passed away and they wanted him to come. So look with me at verses 36 through 43 as we see number two, Christ's power over death. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was good, full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that, G that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping, showing the, showing the tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and kneeled down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she, she sat up. And Peter gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now the city Joppa is just south of the city Tel Aviv in, in modern-day Israel. The city Joppa, uh, for, most, for some of us who have been attending the men's Bible study, is very familiar because this is the very place where Jonah goes to flee from the presence of God. And at Joppa, there's this woman that is told to us that her name was Tabitha. Tabitha was her Hebrew name, and which means gazelle, which means that she was graceful. And Dorcas was the Greek equivalent of the name since Dorcas means gazelle. What we see from the text is that she was a disciple. A disciple is just another way of saying that she was a follower of Jesus Christ and that she received 
God's free gift of salvation through faith alone in Jesus. What we also see from the text is that she was an amazing woman of God. Verse 36 highlights that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Faith alone is what saves someone, but faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by good works. And once Tabitha got saved, she lived to bless, to serve, to help, and to care for anyone that God placed before her. She apparently, from the text, what we can see is that she had a ministry to widows where she made tunics and different garments. And suddenly, one day, she got sick and she died. And it seems so tragic that a useful servant, a faithful servant like Dorcas, should die when she served the church in a, in a handful of ways. Just imagine the, the emotional blow that the church in Joppa went through when they found out that she just suddenly, from one day to the next, passed away. As I think about that myself, um, I'm just reminded back in August 2015, I was part of a church where the lead pastor went away on vacation with his family to Murder Beach only to get into a car accident where he's the only one that died. Only to, to experience the emotional blow that a church had to go through because someone who was faithful suddenly passed away. Someone that you, that you would think you will see tomorrow. So just imagine the, the emotional turmoil that this church in Joppa is going through and the things that they had to endure. So when they heard that Peter was in the area, they called for him to come. What this leads me to believe is that there was a general understanding that there was an unusual amount of power that was working through the apostles. And it was like, wait a minute, these guys are performing miracles. Oh, Peter's in the area? Go get him. So just imagine the faith of the believers must have had when they heard that Peter was in the area. They knew that Christ's power was working through him and through the apostles, and they called for him immediately. Now, to note, there is no record in the book of Acts up to this point that they raised someone from the dead. We've heard of different signs, of different miracles. We've seen blind people receive their sight. We see other paralyzed people get their legs restored and they're able to walk. But not once have we seen a situation where a dead person is given life again. Now, <clears throat> some would say, because of the context that we're in, there's a lot of intellectual arrogance in our day because we just assume, because of technology, that the people back then didn't know better. That we hear arguments or we read stories like this. Oh, she wasn't really dead. She was just comatose. She was in a coma. How do you, how do you really know she's dead? They're just trying to exaggerate the story. But one of the things that leads us to know that she was in fact dead is the historical and cultural context in which this is happening. The, the text shows us that they washed her body, and according to Jewish custom, when someone dies, they, they wash the body and they anoint it with spices before as a, as to, preparate, to prepare the body for burial. In those days, they knew she was dead, dead. Like, we know if someone is dead, we, you know, we check two fingers, pull, check for a pulse. Like, you think we're the only ones who came up with that? No. Like, they knew that as well. Dorcas was dead. They knew she was dead. But they also had enough faith to not bury her right away because they heard Peter was in town. 
just imagine the faith of the friends. Like this story has a lot of uh, interconnections in Peter's memory. Just imagine Peter was with Jesus. And when Peter was with Jesus, he remembers the story in Mark chapter 2 and in Luke chapter 5, where he's at someone's house. And while he's with Jesus, uh, Jesus is performing different miracles that somebody just breaks open a roof. And then they lay down a paralyzed man. And because of the faith of the, not of the paralyzed man, but because of the faith of the friends, this man was healed. So now because of the faith of the friends of Dorcas, her life was restored. She received new life because she, she was dead. She couldn't muster up faith. She couldn't believe. She couldn't pray. But it was the faith of the godly people that she was around that said, you know what? We hear that Peter's in town. Let's wait to bury her. There is a, if there is a chance that God can raise her from the dead, we're going to believe it. Let's call for Peter. And they weren't disappointed. God used Peter to display Christ's power over death. Now, I just want to give a quick disclaimer because uh, this is a time where I just want to gently remind what Luke here is doing. He's simply describing an event. He's not writing to us specific commandments of, oh, if someone dies in your family, here's five steps on how to raise them back from the dead. That's not what he's doing. He's writing uh, just like, hey, I'm giving you a historical record of how God, the Holy Spirit, is uniquely working through the apostles at this time. The reason I say that is because I've heard and experienced horror stories within my own family where we take back passages like this and begin to say, you know what? We're not going to bury so-and-so because we're going to believe by faith that God can raise this person from the dead. And then when God doesn't do it, it shipwrecks someone's faith. So I just want to give that disclaimer because, you know, although God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, what we are reading is a description, not a prescription. He's not commanding us a five-step process on how to restore the dead. Now back to the text. Peter, as I mentioned earlier, he, God is using him in this area of miracles. And God, when he wants to authenticate someone's ministry... He allows them to perform miracles. And like Jesus and like Elisha, Peter sends everyone out the room. When, Pete, when Jesus was sent to Jairus' house with Peter and John, he sent everybody out the house and he told Jairus' daughter to arise, to wake up. When uh, Elisha was in the wilderness, he went to a widow's house. He commanded everybody else to leave and to pray. Like Elisha, Peter, same thing. Y'all get out the room. I'm going to pray. Peter prayed. Why did Peter pray? Why didn't he just speak it into existence? Why didn't he declare it? Because he knew he didn't have that power. He prayed because he relied on the one who can raise someone from the dead. And God gave him the supernatural ability in that moment to raise Tabitha back from the dead. The healing of the paralytic and the resurrection of the widow parallels the ministry of Jesus in the earlier ministries of Elisha and Elisha. Peter is validated once more as an authentic representation, a representative of a messenger of God who works signs and wonders among the people. And because he healed a paralyzed man and now he raised someone from the dead, he got the attention of everybody in that town. Just imagine, like, family member passes away, 
you know, a couple days later, this person who was pronounced dead, you know, you, you know, you were about to put him in the grave. They're walking around shopping at Walmart. They're going to have your attention. They're going to have your attention. So now Peter has another audience where he shares the gospel. And as a result, many turn to the Lord. We can only assume that after this miracle, because the text tells us that he stayed many days in Joppa, that Peter just simply stayed there with all these new converts, taught the Bible, made some disciples, and just stayed there. But one thing we see, and we're going to cover this next week, is that right? what God is doing in Peter's heart in this moment is that he's softening his heart for the work that God is going to do through the salvation of the Gentiles. Peter was in Jerusalem. He stayed in his, his nice comfort echo chamber, and now he's slowly making his way into Gentile territory. And now the reason why we know he's softening his heart is because look where he, he decides to stay at. He stays at a man who's a tanner. We, when we read the Bible, we may overlook, oh, we don't even know what a tanner is. We, we'll overlook that important detail. But a tanner is someone who is constantly exposed to dead animals because he's using dead animal skins to make leather garments. And according to Old Testament Jewish law, Peter would be deemed unclean by simply staying at this person's house. And we see that little by little, God is prickling away some of the legalistic tendencies in Peter's hearts and, and Peter's heart. And we're going to see next week the full reality of that. So what is the greatest miracle that God can do for us? Some would say it is the healing of the body. Some would say it's restoring a paralyzed man back to, to restorative health. Others would say raising the dead. However... The greatest miracle is the gift of salvation. A lost person coming to the feet of Jesus. And it is because salvation comes at the greatest price. It produces the greatest results and bring, brings the greatest glory to God. The reason I, I, I can say that is because when Jesus was here on earth and he performed miracles and taught, he gave us some parables where he said, he didn't say when a person is healed that angels rejoice in heaven. He said there's a celebration in heaven when a sinner turns from their sin and trusts in him for salvation. There is a party that goes on in heaven when a lost sinner comes to their senses and comes to Jesus for salvation. So that leads me to my conclusion, point number three, Christ's power to save. Verses 35 and 42 shows us that as a result of these two miracles, many people saw the power of Jesus and turned to the Lord for salvation. Turning to the Lord for salvation simply meant that they were walking in one direction in their sin and they made a U-turn. It was much more than a change of mind, a change of their thinking. They turned from their sin. They recognized that I should no longer walk in these sinful, wicked ways anymore. I should no longer conduct myself in these ways. I should surrender my life to Jesus and receive new life from him. Because the reality is we aren't paralyzed. We aren't dead, but all of humanity has been infected with a disease called sin. And sin has not only paralyzed our, our minds, our hearts, and our wills to the point that we cannot fix ourselves spiritually. Sin has killed us spiritually. The Bible says that we, uh, prior to Jesus, our natural state is that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. 
And because we are dead spiritually, we need Christ to breathe new life into us. And when Jesus was on earth, he used the word sickness as a metaphor for sin. And the word physician as a metaphor for himself, for the restoring power that he offers to sinners. In Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32, he says that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus calls on sinners to repent, to turn from the sickness of sin and to come to the healing power of Jesus Christ, to the great physician. And just as Jesus raised Tabitha from the dead, he raises sinners from spiritual death back into spiritual life. He awakens us to the reality of who he is. He opens our eyes to see his glory. He gives us new hearts to feel and experience his love. And he animates our arms and our legs and our mouth to work in such a way that we begin to become vessels used for his glory and for his purposes. Just as Ananias was paralyzed for eight years, sin paralyzes us when it's not dealt with. Christians, listen up. When you, even as a believer, begin to engage in sin, it makes us weak, makes us lonely, makes us stagnant. It leads us into an endless state of defeat. You become, you become paralyzed from the reality of who God is and what he did for you in Jesus Christ to the point that your heart is hardened to, and sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you think like, yeah, I've been coming to church. I, I went to Sunday school. I prayed a prayer. I even walked down the aisle. But notice that I've been living for my own way. I've been doing what I wanted to do. And you notice that your own way has made things worse. That your own way has led you down to a path of depression, down a path of addiction. And that you recognize that like a fly when trapped in a spider's web, you try to get yourself out only to get yourself back entangled into the web of sin. That you recognize that you need someone else to come and save you. Turn to Jesus. Come to him. He is mighty to save. He is able to heal you from your addictions. And he can set you free from depression. And because maybe you're a Christian and you've given yourself over to sin and you've been struggling with, with guilt, with shame, and you feel like, I can't even come to church because I just feel so dirty. Come to Jesus. He cleans you up. You don't clean yourself up. Just think about it for a moment. You trying to clean yourself up is like hiring a maid to clean your house, and then you wanted to clean it afterwards. Jesus does the cleaning. You just come dirty. Let him clean you up. Let him heal you. Because no one is ever too far gone from the healing balm of Jesus to receive new life. And just as Jesus healed uh, Aeneas and raised Tabitha back from the dead, all he was doing was giving them a taste of the ultimate healing that he's going to bring from all sin. One day, our hearts will be completely restored spiritually. There's going to be a day where we're no longer going to struggle with sin. There's going to be a day where you're no longer going to struggle with fill in the blank. There's going to be a day where I'm going to have hair again. There's going to be a day where you don't have to be scared that someone may rob you. 
There's going to be a day where you no longer have to fear of, the, of, of cancer or diabetes because Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he's going to fix it all. So friend, have you believed in the message of Jesus Christ? Christian, have you believed in the gospel every day? Because Peter's miracles serve as a sign to point people to Jesus. And these miracles show us Jesus' power over sickness, over death, and his power to save. Let's pray.